Welcome into the Monday edition of the fastest growing and strongest conservative talk show in South Carolina. Justin Hall here with you, joined by South Carolina Attorney General Alan Wilson on the show today. You know, Attorney General, I did have Kelly Nash sitting in that very seat Brother not Kelly. a week ago. Really? Yes. We and and he got us removed from YouTube, but that's that's beside the point. Congratulations. Yeah, that's I know. It's, it's awesome. I'm <laughs> so excited. We we haven't been removed over anything yet, and I feel like we should have been removed over plenty of things. Uh, but we had him on, and I know you joined them. Uh, quite frequently, but we have you on today to talk specifically about judicial reform and what what you're proposing. As a, and again, this all this isn't all start, but it really comes to the forefront on January 5th when the South Carolina Supreme Court read into the Constitution of our state the right to an abortion, mm-hmm. using the right to privacy in the state constitution, which many of us watch those arguments in, at the state Supreme Court. And now we have a situation where everyone for a couple of weeks jumps up and down, screams and yells about judicial reform, and we need to do this and this and this. And then since about late January, it's been kind of quiet, mm-hmm. except from, from your office. It hasn't been very quiet. What are you guys doing over there at the Attorney General's office to seek judicial reform? Well, First off, as, as you know, and many of your listeners or watchers know, that there was a recent case in the Supreme Court that probably has breathed a lot of life into the need for judicial reform. Um, and that was the case involving the secret order that was signed into effect on December 30th of this past year and released a, a an individual convicted of murder from a 2002 murder and who was released 16 years early. And uh, And so are you tracking that? Yes, I am. Yeah, okay. I'm just yes, making no, sure. No, I am. I watched. I watched you in the Supreme Court. <laughs> I'm familiar. So you, are, you are tracking. I'm familiar. So, and I think a lot of people are following it generally, but like mm-hmm. getting into the weeds of it. So let me let me provide a little bit of background on it, and then we can probably unpack that and go into ju- uh, judicial reform and why we need it. So, I mean, here are the basic facts and the law of the case. So, um, Gerard Price was uh, murdered a young man. Uh, football player in 2002. He was convicted in 2003, sentenced to 35 years, which is a mandatory minimum sentence. Uh, and then he got he was serving all the way up until uh, this December when his attorney, who was an attorney legislator, uh, went to the Fifth Circuit solicitor and asked the Fifth Circuit solicitor to make a motion before the judge to consider letting him out um, of, of jail early. Now, this is what the law says. And, and ultimately... The judge signed an order. The order was sealed, and this individual was let out of prison on March 15th. This is what the law says. If you go to the federal level, there is a law that allows uh, inmates serving in federal penitentiaries to get out to get a reduction in their sentence if they provide substantial assistance or help to law enforcement. You see a guard or a prison official, corrections officer about to get killed or shanked or murdered or whatever, and you you save them or you provide information to law enforcement that enables them to solve another case on the outside, then the the state or the government can go to a judge and say, we think Justin should be let out of prison early because he helped save a guard's life. I would like that right? if I found myself in such a situation. Okay. Well, South Carolina adopted a similar law in 2010 saying, okay, we want to have a statute that allows an inmate to get consideration to have their sentence reduced if they provide what is viewed as substantial assistance to law enforcement and, and, and get out early. 
The problem is, is when South Carolina passed that 2010 law, they omitted the language from the federal law that allows an inmate to get their sentence reduced below the mandatory minimum. In federal government, in federal in the federal system, if you have a mandatory minimum of 10 years, you can you can get your sentence reduced lower. In South Carolina's law, there is no provision that allows you to go beneath the mandatory minimum. That's the first thing. The second thing is, is the General Assembly said, okay, if we're going to allow a judge and a solicitor and the defense attorney to revisit uh, the issue of letting someone get out of jail early, then we want them to meet several requirements. First, we want you to file a motion in writing. Secondly, we want the solicitor, after they file their motion, to send a copy of that motion to the chief judge of the whole circuit for that, for that time, for the county. And then after that is done, after those two checks are done, then a circuit judge shall have jurisdiction to hear and resolve the matter. Mean, that means there has to be a hearing in open public court, which means the victims, the parents of the murdered individual in this case, have to be given the ability to come in and say their piece. They have a constitutional right. What happened here is the attorney in this case went to the solicitor, provided two affidavits. One affidavit was unsigned. The other one was unsworn. One of the affidavits was from a inmate who was also serving a sentence for murder and a former correctional officer who had a relationship with Mr. Price, the inmate in question here. Those, that is the credibility of the two affidavits. And these two individuals say, we saw him help a prison guard. The third document that was used to support this was, I call it a self-authenticating addendum because all, it was a white piece of paper with a paragraph that said addendum at the top, and it said Gerard Price helped uh, provide law enforcement, um, helped law enforcement recover or locate a missing inmate. It, the document wasn't from the Department of Corrections. There was nothing sworn about it. There was nothing official about it. It was so just, I could do it here. You could type it up. Okay. Your, if you're in jail, your lawyer could type it up and then say, here's, here's proof that I helped someone. I'm going to write Excellent. it up for you. So that was the documentation used. Okay. They went to the judge with those three pieces of paper, no, no filed motion, no copy sent to the chief judge, who in this case was Cliff Newman. We all know who Cliff Newman is. You're, right? you're familiar. I'm familiar with Judge <laughs> Newman. And no hearing. Mm -hmm. Victims weren't even notified. Okay. They, the judge signed the order. Mm -hmm. The order was then sealed which means the public can't know about it. It wasn't even clocked in, so it wasn't on the public index. No one knew about it. And then on March the 9th, the order was unsealed so that on March 15th, the Department of Corrections could be notified that there was an order. The Department of Corrections actually, I didn't know this at the time of the hearing the other day, but they actually reached out to the court, and the judge said, yes, this is a legitimate order, and the clerk for Richland County apparently, from what I was told by officials at Corrections, that... They said, is this, a real, and the, is this a real order? And the clerk said, this is a real order. We just don't clock sealed orders. And that is, wh and that is why the Department of Corrections said, okay, it's a signed order that hasn't been clocked or filed, but you're, t you're attesting. A judge is telling us it's legit. The clerk is telling us it's legit. So we're going to let Mr. Price out. They let Mr. Price out on the 15th of March. The same day that uh, they let him out, that was the day that the victims received an automated phone call saying he's being let out. No notice to be heard, nothing. And then on the 29th of March, the order was resealed so that no one would know about it. Hmm. So it was opened so that, the, so that it could be used to get him out, and then it was resealed after the fact. So then we become aware of this on April 17th, which is a, a two week, almost two weeks ago from now. Mm -hmm. 
Within a couple of days, we send a petition to the Supreme Court asking them to unseal the records. At that point, the Fifth Circuit solicitor and the defense attorney then consent to have it unsealed because everyone is screaming about this thing. Everyone's upset, and nobody wants to be on the wrong side of this issue. The Supreme Court does unseal the order, and that's when we discover the documents Mm -hmm. under the order that, that, as I described, unsealed, unsworn, and self-authenticating. No independent corroboration of of self uh, or of uh, substantial assistance. So then we file a writ before the, the state Supreme Court saying, this order signed by Judge Manning on December 30th, by the way, that was a Friday. That was his last day in office as a circuit judge. Yes, it was. The affidavits that were signed are over three years old. And the substantial assistance provided, uh, one was from 2010, the other one was from 2017. So this is ancient information being presented to a judge his last day in office. Okay, Talk about a swan song. Absolutely. So, what we at that point, we asked the Supreme Court to say, this order did not follow any of the requirements that are required in statute. Additionally, the murder statute that's been passed has a mandatory minimum requirement. Mm-hmm. And the, the General Assembly amended that statute in 2010 when they wrote the, the first statute, allowing people to get out early. And they basically say the new mandatory minimum is any number above 30. If a judge says 35 years, you can't go below 35 years. Before, the way it was written is if you had a 35-year sentence, you could be reduced to 30. Mm -hmm. Now it's whatever you get, you got. So Price was sentenced to 35 years, which means he has to serve every day of 35 years. They reduced his sentence to time served at 19 years. Uh, 19 years. He got out 16 years early. The victims weren't aware, and the order was sealed. That is what occurred. And wow, um, I don't. I mean, you have records that are sealed in private. No one knows about it. They're unsealed and resealed 14 days later in an obvious attempt to cover up what had happened, mm-hmm. or to or to make it go away. And no one, no one would have been known the wiser. Mm-hmm. If if this wouldn't have been detected now, of course, this case was heard before the Supreme Court, and they put down an order very quickly. They they issued an order with no explanation or, or justification. They said that's going to be forthcoming. I think what the Supreme Court wanted to do is get an order with their decision out, since you've got a, a murderer on the loose w- walking around, a free man. Um, mm-hmm. And so they issued their order. It was a three-two decision. We haven't read the reasoning behind it sure. yet, but they say it's coming. Uh, of note. We were concerned that Mr. Um, Price would be a potential danger to the community as well as a flight risk since he was the former leader of the Blood Gang here in South Carolina and convicted of murder. Danger to the community and a flight risk because he's looking at having his sentence uh, reinstituted and being recommitted to the Department of Corrections. So when I got that order, uh, when I got the scheduling order on Friday from the Supreme Court saying, we will go ahead and hear this case uh, on Wednesday of next week, um, I was like, that's great. That is really fast. And I was incredibly pr- appreciative of the Supreme Court for re- responding so quickly. But then we started thinking, that's five days from now. He, he's got a five-day head start. And there's, it's not like he's on probation. It's no, not like there's a bond. check in. No. There's, there's no requirement he'd check in or that he'd be somewhere. Right. So I sent a letter to the Chief Justice asking, due to him being a danger to community and a flight risk, can we go ahead and issue the bench warrant temporarily so that, or have some way to keep, make sure that he is here so that while y'all are making your decision – We can put our eyes on him and our hands on him if we need to. Well, I never got a response from the Supreme Court uh, or from Chief Justice, which is fine. But but sadly, what we were afraid of, at least half of what we were afraid of, occurred. He's on the run now. 
God forbid he should do something dangerous or harm someone. This is this is where we get into a case, and obviously this um, these documents were, were signed off on by, by Judge Manning, and uh, this goes back to what we read and hear in multiple different locales and outlets that shall remain nameless about the need for judicial oversight. And that it, it, it um, and again, we, we talk about this with a couple different issues. When we talk about the transgressive push for transgenderism and things in schools, and we say, well, not all teachers are bad. You know, there are very good public school teachers. And um, we, we say the same things if there are issues inside, you know, you got issues in the clergy. Well, not all pastors are doing this and that, this, that, and the other. Not all judges in South Carolina are corrupt. Not and, and certainly the vast majority of them are outstanding judges, and they do their job, and they do it well. But in these certain cases, in these certain scenarios, it lends to the notion that the whole system is fraught with deception and corruption, and everyone needs a bus full of lawyers to do whatever. All of this, which leads us to the cause for judicial reform. How can comprehensive judicial reform help alleviate some of these problems that we see, not necessarily with murderers going free, but how can, how can comprehensive judicial reform help with these different issues? Well, and I, and I do want to say something. I was asked by one of the justices on the record on Wednesday when I was arguing before the Supreme Court as to whether I'm going to make an assertion that the lawyer legislator had influence or there was anything inappropriate done. And what, I, what, I, what I'm going to summarize what I said is I don't think that's the appropriate venue for that conversation. <laughs> um, but my position is I do think there is influence, sure. real or perceived, mm-hmm. softly you know, asserted or strongly asserted. Um, And I'm, you know, I'm not going to say anything more than that, but I do believe that when you have a system of government, and we have three branches. We all graduated from the third grade, and I think in the third grade you learned there's three branches of government. Well, some people who are elected officials might not have done that, but uh, yeah. But there are three branches of government, Justin. Yes. The executive, the legislative, and the judicial. Hey, the reason we have three is... We want a check on all three branches. At the federal level, they, you know, when the founders crafted that three government system, they said we want ambition to check ambition. Sure. That, that, that prevents one group of people from becoming all too powerful. Mm-hmm. But the way judges are elected in South Carolina, you have the legislative branch of government has created a vehicle called the Judicial Merit Selection Commission. I know that you are all over this issue. You know what it is. Mm-hmm. But it is a 10-member commission. All 10 members of the JMSC, so we'll call it for short, are appointed by the legislature. Six of the ten members serving on the JMSC are actually current sitting members of the legislature. So when there's a vacancy on the court, family, circuit, appellate, or Supreme Court, you could have ten people apply. The JMSC will identify the three most qualified, I say their three favorite, and send them to be voted on by the full body. So you have the legislature with complete control over the, the selection and vetting processes of judicial candidates. And then the legislature is also in control of the vehicle for electing them. So they get to scrub them, vet them, and elect them, and then fund them. And the executive branch, the closest thing to an executive branch check on power is the governor's veto pen on the judicial budget. But that is really not a equal check on power. Sure. What we are asking for, what I am asking for, is that the executive branch of government needs to have an equal say into how judges are elected and placed on the bench. I don't mind standing before and being under the, the authority of a court because that is the judicial check on me, on my office, and on the, my branch of government. But I have absolutely zero say. The executive branch, the people charged with ex- executing the law, 
have no say on what type of judges are there. You said something a minute ago. There, are, you know, you were talking about people saying there's so many wonderful judges on the bench. So when I'm talking to legislators, and I've had several legislators say this to me, well, you had an amazing judge in the Murdoch trial. The eyes of the world saw what a great judge he was. That is proof that uh, our system works. So, someone told me the other day, the Supreme Court avoided this order. So th that is proof that the system works. What they're doing is they're cherry-picking sure. exa examples of where the right outcome occurred as proof that it's almost circular, as mm -hmm. proof that the system yeah. works. Yeah. And I tell these members of the legislature, if you want to cherry-pick your anecdotes of how it works, let me, let me go ahead and show you a very long list of anecdotes where it was horrible. I mean, I've had judges tell me lawyer legislators walk into the courtroom and pretty much point at them and say, I want to talk to you in your chambers. And then they have to go back there and have the, have the lawyer legislator tell them what they want. And then they feel the pressure that if they don't provide it or they don't do what they're told, there could be repercussions. By the way, it's also not fair to lawyer legislators who aren't abusing their power and there are a lot that are doing it the right way, they go into court and they ask a judge to rule a certain way, and they're right on the law. The lawyer legislator's right on the law. I've had judges tell me the opposite is true. I'm nervous about ruling for them because I don't want them to think that I'm, I don't want the public to see me doing something for lawyer X because they get to vote from, you know, whether I have a job right. or not, when that was the right decision to make. Right. So the, to your question, I think you need to, bring balance to the imbalance in the power structure of government, and you need to put a lot of transparency in there, a lot of transparency. When I was standing before the Supreme Court this week, Chief Justice Beatty basically said something. He said, the state made a mess, meaning the Fifth Circuit Solicitor's Office, and you're asking us to clean it up. My position is this. Yes, the state was wrong. What my office, but I'm representing the state, but my job as the chief prosecutor is to police and supervise elected prosecutors when they violate the law. That happened here. So I'm taking ownership of it. What I was asking the court to do was to take ownership of one of their judges. Mm -hmm. And not one point during the entire arguments that I really hear any criticism of one of their own judges. I had no problem criticizing, you know, the office that did this thing on the government side. Mm -hmm. But I want to see the Supreme Court hold their judges accountable. And I appreciate the Supreme Court ruling. It was a split decision, and I haven't read the reasoning. I'm glad that they did what they did, but it kind of alarms me that it was close as it was and that there was there didn't appear to be any verbal accountability mm. for what the judge did. So when you're talking about introducing more executive check on the issue, I, I think the first thing that comes to my mind is asking people to take away their own power. I don't want to say it's an attempt in vain, but certainly the legislative body might not be so inclined to do that. What, how can... How can that take place? How can you, how can you introduce some judicial reforms, and then it work its way through the legislative body that they're willing to say, you know what, some of this power we'll give it away. So, and I'm not going to use names sure. of people who are for or against my sure. position because yeah. when I have conversations with lawyer legislators, they're in confidence. Sure. And I'm going to maintain that confidence. Sure. But I've had lawyer legislators who are very much in favor of devolving power away from the General Assembly okay. because they think that's good government. There are lawyer legislators who have talked to me and they have tried to find a way to justify. Because, you know, they would say it's not because we want power, but because we think the system works fine the way it is. Um, but they do derive benefits, direct or indirect. Um, so I don't want to betray that, but one of the things that I'm dealing with is 
is that some lawyer legislators are telling me that this is not a priority for them because their constituents don't think it's a priority. So they're talking about abortion. They're talking about tax policy. They're talking about parental rights, all important issues. But it's not a zero-sum game. Just because one issue is really high profile doesn't mean this one can't be equally high profile. Sure. And, you know, people, people need to understand why this is important, why there should be balance in the government. So if, to, to your question, I think you were indirectly asking me, what should we do? Ideally, I would like to see South Carolina do it the way the feds do it, which is the President of the United States nominates someone who then gets publicly vetted by the legislative branch through the Senate confirmation. I would love to see in South Carolina the governor nominate someone and then the General Assembly confirm but have open public hearings where the judge is vetted in public and then voted upon. But if, if you don't like the quality of the judges you're getting, you can point to one individual or a smaller group of individuals in the executive sure. branch depending on what they do. But to do that, you would have to amend the state constitution because in the state constitution is a requirement that the Judicial Merit Selection Commission exist. Mm-hmm. However, the makeup of the Judicial Merit Selection Commission is a creature of statute, which means to get rid of the JMSC, you got to amend the Constitution, which is, as we all know, very hard. Very hard. But to change the makeup of it, that's a statutory construct. We can pass a law and change it. So if they don't want to go with the federal model, and that seems like a bridge too far, I'm willing to compromise. Basically, reform the JMSC. Get all the legislative appointments off of it. Get all the legislators off of it. Remove the cap of three, meaning if 10 people apply to be a judge and they're determined to be qualified, then they get to be voted on up or down in the General Assembly. Let them go through multiple ballots. It's Mm -hmm. messier, but it's more transparent and more Mm -hmm. accountable. Mm -hmm. Those are three major reforms I would make. Let the governor or the executive branch appoint the members of the commission who use the staff to vet the qualifications and then publish open public reports. And then let the General Assembly, I'm not trying to take power to elect the judges from them. They should have all of the power afforded to them to vote on the judges. But the executive branch needs to have a role in determining the quality of the people and the applicants going up to be sure. voted on. And so you mentioned like four different areas that, that are of importance to the General Assembly right now and what they're saying are important to their constituents or as some like to say their people. And... Really, if if you look at just some of those issues, a lot of those are going to make their way to the court anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, as we know, one specifically made it to the court um, and, and leaves us in the position that we're in right now. But your office has been um, widely in public view over the last several months. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned Judge Newman, and ha- have, have you? Do you still take frequent trips down to? That area of the my, low my country? Car, my car is almost on autopilot. I want to drive toward 95 and then go south to Walterboro because I was driving there so much. But, I, no, I haven't been back. We drove We drove down for a, for a beach weekend last weekend, and we drove down 95, down that specific area. And I'm like, man, I couldn't imagine making this drive for – how many weeks was that? Well, I, we were living there. Yeah, you were, yeah, you were down there yeah, for a while. We were. It, it, honestly, it wasn't bad. The people of Walterboro and Colleton County were amazing. We would walk into restaurants and – I mean, they were so kind, and people would recognize a number of us just because everything was on TV all the time. Yeah. And they were so nice and polite. And the, the, the clerk of court, the sheriff, the county officials, the city officials were just amazing. It was such a, a warm community, and we really did feel embraced while we were down There's there. There's a really good country cooking buffet right off of 95 in Walterboro. Very good. Starbucks is near it, but that place is delicious, by the way. You need to go back. 
I, you need to go to that place. I, you probably have you been there, though. What was the name of it? I can't remember for can't the life of me. It's a little hole in the wall, though. Okay. Well, it's I'll definitely go back and check it's near, it out. It's near five guys and everything. Near okay. cookout. Yeah. Whole thing. But go there. It's the best spot. So your office has been in, in, or the Attorney General's office has been in view of that, and then you had a case this week before the Supreme Court. What else are you guys working on? Well, obviously, one of the things that we're always working on is curbing the power of the federal government. You know, just the the administration by fiat, the ruling by fiat, executive fiat, rather. Um, I'm I'm concerned. You know, I was involved. I, I've actually um, authored and led a, I think, roughly ten states signed on a, an amicus brief dealing with the protection of parental rights. It was in support of a Moms for Liberty group in Florida, and we supported that case in Florida. We want to do everything we can. You know, and I know Joe Biden's comments this week alarmed people when they say, you know, your children aren't your, I'm paraphrasing, of course, your children aren't yours or everybody's. Um, yeah, there are children, there are nations. children. That, that's, it, that, that, that comment is very troubling. Um, but with that being said, uh, you know, I'm very concerned about parents having a say. There are people who feel entitled to our kids, entitled. I think there is a law that was passed in Oregon or Washington State and again, not in South Carolina, but what's happening over there ends up coming across oh, the yeah. country. It where right. if you're a 13-year-old transgender kid and your parents won't let you transition, you can go, um, people get immunity to allow a minor stay at their house, like a yes. stranger adult. Yes. You saw that. Yes. And I'm, I'm, I don't Kidnapping. know if I'm oversimplifying it, no. but, but they're, trying, you know, they're trying to say parents aren't allowed to know if their kids are, are socially transitioning at school. I mean, just the idea that a parent, I mean, you can't give a kid a Tylenol, but you can let them transition to the opposite gender. One one is infinitely more serious, and that's the Tylenol. And I know I know this is like a culture war we're talking about right now, and I don't even know if you want to go here, but no I, I think two things can be true. Mm-hmm. Um, they say that if you have, if you oppose allowing, you know, biological boys into girls' bathrooms or showers or whatever— mm-hmm. Or if you oppose people allowing their kids until the age of majority, of course, till they're eighteen, but you oppose allowing parents to let kids mutilate their bodies mm-hmm. and inject themselves with life-altering hormones before they're eighteen years old, yep. that somehow you're transphobic or you're a bigot. And I don't understand why we can't. Why two things can be true at once? I can be compassionate. There are people out there who, either through social contagion or through some mental illness, suffer from gender d- dysphoria. And are either confused or literally, I mean, there are people, anorexic people who think they're fat and they weigh 80 pounds. There are people out there who think the voices in the radio are real people talking to them. People have real illnesses in their mind. And we should show compassion for these people and treat them with dignity and respect. But at the same time, I think as a society, we have a duty to protect kids until their age of majority. And I'm a big defender of parental rights. But parents, parents can't. You can't let your ten-year-old drink scotch or smoke cigarettes. You not, should, legally. No, not legally. Not legally. That's contributing not. to the delinquency. It's a crime. Yes. But we're going to allow you to inject your ten-year-old with life-altering hormones and mutilate their genitalia. I mean, so it's not an absolute right. I can't beat my child. I can't traffic my child. You know, the child's not my chattel and my property. I should love my child and care for my child and do all I can for my child. If my child has gender dysphoria, I may want to nurture my child and create as comfortable an environment as possible, but I don't get to do all those things to my child. And if I, if you or I support a law that is against allowing a parent to mutilate their child and inject them with hormones, we're called bigots. Yes. Yes. 
Yes, I but listen. This isn't nothing new. I mean, I I on this show. You, if you look down in the comment section, there's probably the one person who's right now calling me a white Christo fascist transphobic bigot, and that's fine. That's fine. I'm I'm fine with it. Do whatever you want. the The problem I have in this issue is when now we have a now we have a federal government that's very much a nanny state at this point, mm-hmm. big government, where our vice president wants us to remember that in this moment of, in time. Um, in this moment in time, we are we are really looking at the things that have been unbridled by the things that could become. If you figure out what she meant, let me know. I rarely know what she means. I'm telling you, I think I think our vice president smokes pot, and so the the issue we have is federal government is now suing Tennessee over this. You've got a push. You've got Dylan Mulvaney being invited to the White House uh, to talk about. Uh, these issues and and how the federal government needs to help and how states states who who ban gender child mutilation are now considered extreme like help me out people who want to stop children from having their gender genitals mutilated he said are extreme that's right that, that we comprehend this with me in the year of our lord 2023 it is wrong to want to prevent children from having their genitals mutilated. Also wrong to prevent underage individuals from being able to take significant medication should they find themselves in an unwanted pregnancy. Like, all of these things are true. And the federal government holds the purse strings. Not only that, but now they're using the Justice Department to go after states. It's scary. Specifically. And they're putting informants in Catholic churches. Yeah. We're getting into 1984 territory I here. I love that book. Um, you know, it's a great book. I mean, we are. We are getting into yeah. Georgia Orwellian territory here. I love it. Um, but no, everything you're saying is absolutely correct. And, and But here's the other thing. That horrible shooting, that Christian school, the transgender individual. Yes. There, I didn't see, and by the way, I want to distinguish between, I have a lot of friends who aren't on my side politically. They're, they're Democrats, and they're probably, they're left of center. But I distinguish between liberals and leftists. Okay, they're different. Um, they, they are different. There are there are liberals who are pro-choice, but I've got a lot of friends who are liberal Democrats who think this has gone too far. Mm-hmm. So when I when I talk about leftists, I'm not just categorizing because I know a lot of Democrat, a lot of my Democrat friends are, are you know very much on board with this. But I will say this: I didn't see, I, I didn't see a whole lot of outrage about the shooter. It, it was almost the issue became about see what we drove this transgender person to do. This is society put them in this position. I didn't see. I didn't see the families of these murdered children being invited to the White House. No, we would rather invite three grifting legislators who were three of the four who voted against a measure that would protect students more. There was a bill in Tennessee that voted that that put more armed security in a school. Which, by the way, according to this transgender shooter, they avoided one place because there was too much security. Yes. So this would have stopped this shooting. Because and and I've I've mentioned this on the program before. All this do something, do yeah. something, do something. That's ridiculous. Just just figure out what needs to be done and pass the legislation. These three didn't vote for it, but they get to go to the White House because they do a really cool fake Martin Luther King impression, and they stand up and say gobbledygook in front of a in front of a church um, about praying to the mother spirits. Meanwhile, you have families and a pastor specifically of this church who are grieving the loss of their child. I, I find it abhorrent that the current president of the United States has not one time since this happened mentioned the word Christian. You won't find it. You won't find it. 
Meanwhile, I'm supposed I'm supposed to feel very very sorry for the person who committed the atrocity. And again, I'm not trying to draw connections, but if this person were wearing some sort of red hat with some writing on it, I think the tone would be very different. Well, at the end of the day, and to go all the way back to what we're doing, we're trying to find our stakehold in the war against freedom, yep. um, against federalism. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that I protect South Carolina as much as I can. And while I, the reason I join in so many suits involving other states <clears throat> is because if I see the, the, the bandits at my neighbor's door and I'm not over there in the front yard helping my neighbor, the next knock at the door may be the bandits coming for me and my family. Um, and so I believe that every state needs to band together. That is why I, I'm constantly telling people we, we join all these suits to defend the borders because every state is a border, not just Texas and the states on the north, you know. Mm-hmm. But we're all border states because all of the fentanyl, the drugs, the violence, the human trafficking, it's it, the cartels. We just had a grand jury case uh, a month and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Cartel drugs pouring over the borders into South Carolina yep. from behind, facilitated from inmates working in prisons. But we should let some of them go, I guess. Yeah, well, we should let them go. And again, um, there were there were concerns. But going back to the case this week, there were concerns that the individual that was in prison might shouldn't be sent back to prison because his life would be in jeopardy. That was that actually was mentioned all from the floor of the Supreme Court, but no one really, no one's speaking for the victims. It. it we're we're living, and, and that's why I like having Attorney General Alan Wilson on, because we, we're living in a world that's just so upside down and so turned. And it's just it's just mind-boggling to hear some of the things that are argued on the floor of a Supreme Court or argued in the well of the Senate or spoken from the Rose Garden. It, it it's all, If you were to sit back and watch the news all the time, and I encourage you not to, uh, you might, you, that's what my job is, You you might think there's literally no hope. I think I think I came to that point this week where it's like I just don't even know what to do anymore. Just understand there are good people fighting for good virtuous things and fighting to maintain the freedoms that we hold so dear and fighting to ensure that those freedoms are uh, enjoyed uh, to our posterity. By the way, I think that's in some major document that was written a long time ago by some some old what, racist white guys. I think is what I've been told. Uh, by the way, Old House Cafe. In Old, House, uh, Old House Cafe. Hey, Very good buffet. Call to action. Call to action. action. Give a call to action. Well, call to action. Because if people are watching this or listening to this as they mm-hmm. drive, you know, like, well, what can I do? I get asked that all the time. I said earlier in my remarks, uh, as it relates to judicial reform, that there are people in the General Assembly and the legislative branch who don't feel that judicial reform is as important as some of these other things. And the reason they have told me they don't feel that way is because they don't f- hear it from their constituents. They would probably be for it, but they're trying to pride. They have so much bandwidth, and they're probably thinking to themselves, I hear about parental rights, or I hear about vaccine, or I hear about tax policy, or whatever. And so that's what I'm going to focus on the things that I'm hearing about. If they don't hear about judicial reform, it doesn't get prioritized. If they hear about it, they're going to prioritize it. So if you're listening to this, tell your state legislator, your state senator, you don't even have to be in their district. Send them an email. Send them a letter. Give them a phone call if you know them personally. When you see them at an event, be polite, be respectful, be courteous, but go up to them and say, you guys need to bring more transparency and accountability to the way that judges are elected. Yeah. That is what I need people to do. Raise awareness with your elected officials. Do that, and we always encourage you. Uh, they don't know who you are if you don't know who they are. 
So you can go to the Palmetto Family Council app. What a plug. You can go to the Palmetto Family Council app, download that, and there you can find your legislator, your representative, your senator, your your state senator. We know who the U.S. senators are, or you should. Uh, you're looking for your state senator and your state rep, not your U.S. House rep and your U.S. senator. So make sure to do all that. Get connected. Follow us on social media. Subscribe, share, like this podcast, five-star rating and review. I believe we've earned it. Do all the things that we always talk to you about. And as always, Attorney General Alan Wilson is always an appreciated guest on our show. Your dad's Romanian dollar, by the way, is still sitting on my desk. <laughs> I need to get We need to get Joe back on. It'd be fun. Uh, it's still sitting on my desk right behind a couple of uh, bobbleheads and signed baseballs. Did you get any but business you cards? Did you get any business cards? I, I got, yeah, I got one from him and like three other people <laughs> who are here. I, I don't have any knickknacks from you, unfortunately. I, I feel like Joe has set the bar. Yeah. And you here's, aren't... Here's a pen. Oh, thank, thanks. It's very similar to the three other ones that I have sitting right here. It Was this one... I tell you what, just fool me. Was this one used at a courthouse down in Collin County? You know, it might have been. Excellent. We'll keep it right here. Look at that. It's just going to sit right there. You can see it right on the It's camera. a knickknack. It's a knickknack. And it's really just a placeholder, maybe a paperweight. Who knows? But that's all the time we have on this that gets off the rails very quickly. The fastest growing and strongest conservative talk show in the state of South Carolina. It's, it's fastest growing now because Kelly Nash isn't on, and so now I can say fastest growing. For Mitch Prosser, who is not on camera, and that's okay, and Attorney General Alan Wilson, I'm Justin Paul. We'll talk to you later on this week on the Palmetto Family